Welcome to the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast, the podcast where each week we take a passage of the Bible, we read it together and we discuss it, getting three different perspectives from three different people. It's great to, to be together. All here, we're all here together and to, uh, with me as always, I have our expert Lachlan Miller, Hello. our newbie Morgan Carter Hello. and myself, I'm Joshua Lee, the PK. How are you all doing? Great. Yeah, well, well. Oh, that's really good. How's how's the how's the week's been? Uh, my week's been great, actually. Um, I took a few PD days and I did a mental health first aid course, which was actually really insightful and really helpful for doing any type of pastoral work in mm. the twenty uh, first century. Yeah, well, especially if you're a you're a youth, young adult youth. Yeah, yep. And there's plenty of uh, things to talk about in that sphere when it comes to <laughs> mental health. How are you, Morgan? Good. It's nice to be back. I started Pilates as a new hobby. This oh, week. Yeah. So I did that on Monday. It's now Friday and I'm still sore. <laughs> <laughs> but it was nice to start something new. So nice. something oh, different good. in my week. Nice. Great. How about you, Josh? Yeah, just good. Just busy, busy, continually uh, working on working on the podcast, doing all the behind the scenes editing and making sure because we're a weekly podcast. So trying to get it, making sure that each each week it come, comes out and then the various other work we have. I've got another big client job coming up. So we're just getting prepared for that. So yeah, not not too bad week, but just busy. So, Mr. Mr. Lachlan Miller, what passage are we doing today? We're doing chapters 21 and 22 of Matthew. Today's passage comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 21 and 22. Hopefully you have read these chapters in preparation. If not, please pause now and read those chapters. We begin this section with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And while he enters humbly, riding on a donkey... He quickly asserts his authority in his actions at the temple, in his cursing of the fig tree, and in his debates with the religious leaders. So to recap last episode and the last chapters that, that we read, we, we read more of the teachings of of, of Jesus, and mm-hmm. it was his, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, his final sermon? No, his fourth, but his fourth. not final. There is a fifth coming up next episode. Ah, and so it was more about the model disciple and how to be that model disciple. More about being the model community of disciples. Mm. So yes, you're absolutely right. It is about how to be a model disciple, but it was more specific about community amongst them was that final sermon of Jesus's. Yeah. And now we, now we're getting to this stage as we, as we're, as we're moving forward, we're seeing his road to Jerusalem and his road to, to the cross, his death and, and the resurrection here. And that leads us into his, what our Bibles like to uh, title this the Jesus's triumphant entry. Yeah, it's probably important to point out that in the Gospel of Matthew, this is the first time we've seen Jesus in Jerusalem. But from mm. the other Gospels, we know that he went there several times throughout his life. Um, it was pretty normal for Jewish people during the festivals to be in Jerusalem multiple times a year. Mm. And so Matthew makes a big deal about this particular time of Jesus entering Jerusalem because it's the final time. Mm. And it's his last week on earth is what we're about to read through in the next few episodes and yeah here he comes into jerusalem for the final time and you and you just you just said it then but this is just one week yeah from here to the end of the book is effectively just one week wow i always thought it was longer i always thought these especially just these these next two few chapters that we're gonna read here in in this episode and then the following episodes to come it always feels like it gets dragged out for quite quite a while that it might have this whole period might have been a month but one week the pharisees and the sadducees moved quickly definitely 
there was lots of interactions that Jesus had while in Jerusalem for this last time. Mm. Is there a meaning behind the donkey? Um, yeah, yeah. So um, we can see there that Matthew quotes Zechariah 9 verse 9, where the prophet predicted that when their king came, when the king of Jerusalem arrived, he would come in a really gentle manner. Instead of like a conquering king on a war horse, he would rock up in a humble manner on a donkey. It actually uses the word meek, which we saw way back in the Sermon of the Mount. So that's the same word there. Um, and also it's it's even more humble and gentle than it is just on a donkey, but it's on the cult of a donkey. So a baby donkey. This story here is that uh, like we're we're now into Palm Sunday. Yes. And this is where this is where we get Palm Sunday from. If you've ever gone through uh, Sunday school, this is a very sort of big, very interactive uh, Sunday morning where uh, I know at least in, in my church growing up, we would actually get the part like uh, we get palms, uh, cut off palms out, we put it all down, we get all the rugs and then either, well, sometimes it used to be a poor kid that the, whoever was the biggest kid or the tallest kid had to be the donkey and whoever that was the <laughs> lightest kid then had to had to be Jesus or in more sort of uh, the more uh, later years that I was in um, Sunday school we just got a tricycle that was the, that was the don- <laughs> that was the donkey that was the donkey and who and whoever was was Jesus always had a fun time just hooning on through <laughs> but I always remember this as the big sort of grand nature and it was always um, emphasized to us in um in Sunday school, and and rightfully so, because it's meant to be grand as 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 it's shown here. Would you be able to explain what Palm Sunday is? Yeah, definitely. So Palm Sunday is celebrating this event. So it's the Sunday before Easter happens, because that is in the narrative when Palm Sunday happens is just before Jesus is executed. As Jesus walks into Jerusalem, they literally throw down palm branches and cloaks on the road before him. So his donkey can walk across it. Uh, we we're actually teaching on this earlier in the year in my youth ministry. And after uh, we had finished a talk on Palm Sunday, a youth came up to me and went, so like, what do the palm leaves mean? And I was like, how did I get through a whole talk on this topic <laughs> and not actually talk about what like what we name it after actually mm. means? And so palm branches symbolize Jewish victory. So there's this Jewish history book called the Maccabees and in that book, after the Jews save Israel from an invasion, so they push back the invading force, the soldiers return to Jerusalem waving palm branches as a sign of their victory. And so from then on, palm branches just became part of the Jewish identity and it meant victory. And so as Jesus enters Jerusalem walking across palm branches while well, his donkey walks across them, then that's really meant to symbolize that he's entering as the victorious king the laying of the palms and then the people's cloaks it's all that it's all to do with the respect of of jesus and respect of of the of the king that's coming coming through that that the donkey and jesus never have to touch the ground that they are that they are stepping on and that they're you know the dirty hooves are now stepping on 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 their cloaks and this is a huge sign of of respect and of just humbleness that the that the people people have here and it's quite interesting as we sort of get to the end, we have the the crowds that are participating in this, but then we also have the crowds that are quite confused and are asking who who this man is and what's what's happening. And I think that's where you see a distinction between the groups of crowds. Mm. So the way that Jesus was entering Jerusalem would have been via the entry where all the people from Galilee were coming from. 
because like everyone in, in Israel, all the Jews in Israel come to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And so Jesus would have been walking the route with all of these Galilean people that he's been doing ministry amongst for years at this point. And then they arrive in Jerusalem with like the entire rest of the population. Mm. And so while the people that walked in with him and laid down branches have seen him as their prophet for a while, there's greater confusion across the rest of Jerusalem about who exactly this Jesus guy is. And is this sort of his almost his final hurrah of going quite because there's a different there's a difference here because previously Jesus has been a bit more secretive in his actions and his miracles and his teaching, a bit more hush hush. Um, instructing his followers not to uh, tell anyone about this. But this then has seemed quite loud, uh, very o- overt. Um, is, is this the sort of the maybe final hurrah of like this is this is what I'm doing? Because as, as it sort of continues, I don't think Jesus is ever hiding anything. Yeah, I think you're right. This is like his big kingly entrance moment. Mm. So we knew the Messiah was meant to be the king of Israel. And we know that there were certain expectations for how that Messiah or king would enter Jerusalem. And so Jesus fulfills all of those expectations. But what we realize is that all of these people here who in submission to this king are placing cloaks and palm branches down by the end of the week are going to be chanting crucify him. Mm. And so while there's a lot of excitement in this moment, it doesn't take very long for that all to turn around. We see this word Hosanna Mm. in this part. What is the meaning of Hosanna or what is it? Yeah, yeah. So Hosanna is the Greek form of the Hebrew word, which means save us. So we can find that in Psalm 118, for example. And so the people are literally chanting, save us, son of David. Are they saying save us in terms of like, save us, our our God, or save us from the Roman oppression? I suspect that they had in mind the Roman oppression, Mm. but in God's purposes, Jesus was there for their salvation of something far more important than the Roman oppression. I wonder if it's people, if it was there, if there was a slight mix up of, of, and a big crowd, lots of different people, lots of different emotions happening. But yeah, I wonder if people had different minds on why Jesus was there. And then we move to the next part, which talks about Jesus cleanses the temple. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've seen this before in another gospel. Almost definitely, in fact. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> in John. Yeah, you said John was the first gospel you ever read when yeah. you first became a Christian. And I remember right? the cleansing of the temple and I just thought, is there, like, why is it in here as well? Yeah. Well, if you remember in John, it happens in chapter two of John. Mm. And chapter this two. happens at the very, very end of the story in Matthew. Yeah. And so most scholars think that Jesus did it twice. And so at the very beginning of his ministry, as recorded in the Gospel of John, he rocks up to the temple and he cleanses it of all these people who are doing the wrong thing. Like they're turning it from a place of prayer and worship and reverence to God into a marketplace, which is just Mm. not okay. And so Jesus clears it in the Gospel of John. In John, it actually says that he makes a whip and he clears the temple, which is I always thought as a kid was a really cool image of Jesus with a whip. <laughs> but then we also see here in Matthew that he does it again at the end of his ministry. So he sort of begins and ends his ministry by clearing out the temple and trying to get it back to what it's originally for, which is the praise and prayer and worship of God. And it's not even like markets and and stores in service for the temple. It's just these these things are just happening. It would be like if someone set up like a gambling ring or or a different, just a, an entirely different shop in, in, in your local church and you rocked up going, wait, what's happening here? Hang on, why has everything changed? I think the stalls that were set up were actually there for religious ah. purposes. 
And so the way the Jewish system worked is you, for certain sins and for certain festivals, you had to sacrifice certain animals. Mm. And so they would have been selling those animals there for those who didn't have a farm and didn't bring their own. To give money to the temple, you had to give money in a certain currency to the temple. And so money changes were actually mm. pretty essential role. And so it seems like all of the stalls here were things that were important for the worship of God in this temple, mm-hmm. but they were set up in the Gentile area of the temple. So Gentiles uh. couldn't go any deeper into the temple than where these markets appear to be set up. And so the only access the Gentile people had to God was in this court of the Gentiles, and suddenly it was a marketplace. So while these services were important, Jesus effectively says they do not belong in God's temple. Mm. Like, set yourself outside of the temple, but not here. This mm. is a place of prayer. And the imagery, I always love the imagery in this because it's quite strong. And you and there's lots of images online and different depictions of what Jesus is doing. And this is all, whenever, whenever someone says, oh, what would Jesus do? WWJD, what would Jesus do? You're like, well, he actually got a whip and um, knocked over some tables and drove people out. So he does have that side of him too. To me, this always begs the question, what would Jesus do if he visited your church? Because we always think that we run the modeled church or we always think that we are like we're doing everything either perfectly or to the best best that we can but as we see here jesus is coming in and clearing out temples jesus is changing sort of sort of the way and it always begs the question in my mind of if jesus came to our church here today what things would he be wanting us to change about it? What things have we gotten comfortable about doing or maybe have strayed us off the path a bit? It's a great question. Mm. I think that's a, a moment of serious reflection for all of us who uh, attend church and have spheres of influence within our churches to mm. really think what is there that is distracting and not important. Because I always think, would Jesus come in and completely just change uh, change your church or would he come in going, good job? You know, like well done, good and faithful servant. servant. Yeah, I just love the vision of that going to a Pentecostal church, like him worshiping up the front, like, <laughs> just getting all into it. Maybe he brings a flag in. Like, does he have like a reserve row. seat in the front row? The other thing you need to realize about this clearing of the temple is that there was a general expectation amongst the Jewish people that the Messiah would come in and purify the temple, and so they got that from Malachi three and Zechariah fourteen. And so they were, anyone paying serious attention to Jesus's actions here, I think would have seen a link between Mm. their expectations of a purifying of this space and Jesus's actions in really forcing out all of these marketplace. And then we come to the fig tree. This is my favorite. This is one of my more favorite stories because of how random it is. (laughs) Like, this is where I, is this hangry Jesus? Was Jesus so sort of like hungry and then there was no figs or ripe figs on that tree that he just, because out of nowhere, he just curses it. It just seems so, <laughs> it, it's like, Jesus, you're not you when you're hungry. Have a Snickers. <laughs> have, like, a Snickers. <laughs> have a Snickers. Have a Snickers. Have a fig, fig bar. I so know what you mean, Josh, because whenever I do research for an episode, I start off by reading the passage and circling things that I know I need to know better heading into recording an episode. Mm. And this section of the passage when I was doing my prep was just like circled with question marks everywhere. <laughs> like it was the whole thing was highlighted because I was like, what is going on here, Jesus? Because I get the I get the end, like the way it comes to that, sort of the end, you get the ending of like, okay, so if, if you have faith, thing, things will happen. But to just then curse a tree because it has no fruit on it, <laughs> it's just like, there's got to be other ways, Jesus. I think this is where our... Old Testament knowledge 
is vitally important. Mm. So in the book of Micah, which is one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, we see that the image of a fruitless fig tree represents Israel's moral and religious failure. Mm. So I think this off the back of his clearing of the temple is actually very important, especially in the lead up to next week's episode where Jesus will directly talk about the destruction that is about to come upon Jerusalem. What we see here is that this fig tree represents Israel. Jesus has come to Israel and he walks up to this fig tree and there's no fruit. Like he expects there to be fruit in Israel. He's found none. And so now he's judging it. And so what we see here in the fig tree is actually an acted parable. So it's not a crazy, hangry Jesus moment. It is Jesus acting out a parable for us before our very eyes. Right. Mm, that seems a bit more in character. Yeah, more so than just cursing a tree for not having fruit, yeah. which in the Gospel of Mark, it says that it wasn't the season for figs, which is just <laughs> so much more brutal when you don't think that Jesus it's not the tree's fault. Tree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just what the poor tree. Would somebody think of the tree? It's not even the season for figs. And Jesus <laughs> is like, how dare you not have figs? <laughs> but then I think we see the disciples latch onto the wrong bit of the of symbolism. Jesus is doing this acted parable about how he's about to bring judgment upon Israel. And the disciples are like, wow, how'd you do that? And then Jesus has to explain prayer to them again because they've latched onto the wrong bit. (laughs) Now, here we have another trying to trip Jesus up, um, trying to trap him into a into a corner and we'll see this throughout the passages of of them trying to get to get to jesus but jesus i think in all the in all instances uh, expertly throws it back at them mm-hmm. and throws it back at, in, in their face and especially when it comes to the end they're like we don't know yeah i think it's more than just a clever evasion technique of jesus to bring up john the baptist because what he does is he asks did you think john was from god Mm. And they're like, oh, we don't know how to answer this because we think no, but the people think yes, and it's all about appearances. And so they refuse to answer. And therefore, Jesus is like, well, I don't have to answer your question. But what he's done is he's shown the clear link between John's ministry and his ministry. Mm. I think that is exactly why he points to John the Baptist in this moment, because he is the continuation of what John the Baptist started. And they refuse to accept John, and that's why they won't accept him. Yeah, and it's interesting how they the whole reasoning to not say he was merely human was because of the crowd, and it was the crowd mentality, and they were afraid of the crowd and what the crowd thought. Not even you know because they could have just said said he was merely human, but they're having these sort of very like earthly feelings of oh, what might the crowd think, and we should keep up appearances here because we want the crowd on our our side uh, rather than maybe sticking to their to their guns or what they believe they're letting external factors also influence their their brain and their mind and their way of thinking what would happen if jesus had said yes to his authority coming from heaven i feel like the uh, religious leaders had already made up their minds even if jesus had claimed his authority was from heaven i don't think they would have believed him in that moment i was referencing john chapter 8 quite a bit a few episodes ago because i just done a sermon on it and again it's really relevant because In John chapter 8, Jesus clearly says that he is from above, that his authority comes from his Father in heaven, and the Mm. people just do not believe him and keep asking questions that keep getting more and more off track because they just don't like the idea that this man they fundamentally disagree with could claim his authority is from heaven. Mm. Mm. So it almost, I don't think, mattered how Jesus responded to this question because they had already decided. 
Yeah. yeah. But instead, like you said before, he's trying to link it with John the Baptist's ministry and then Jesus's ministry that was to follow after John's ministry. And then Jesus tells three parables in a row, which all sort of convey a similar idea. Mm. And they're all basically in response to this line of questioning. With the parable of the two sons, is there a reason that he uses two? I think the two sons represent the two different options, Mm. which is one son goes, yes, of course, father, I will do what you ask, and then doesn't do anything. So his words don't line up with his actions. And then the second one says, no, I'll never do that, but then goes out and does it. And Jesus is trying to inquire of the people and of the religious leaders, like what is more important, words or deeds? And everyone seems to agree that doing is more important. Like the son that goes out and does the will of his father, even if he didn't at first seem to be that way inclined, was doing the right thing. That's a little bit of a lesson for us when reading it. Yeah, so I think we can take many lessons away from that just (laughs) individually, but we can also see that The Pharisees and the religious people were the people who with their lips were saying that they followed God, but their actions did not line up that way. And yet all these sinners and Gentiles and tax collectors that Jesus engaged with, they, by their lips, were far from God. Mm. But their actions of believing and following Jesus showed that they were coming around and doing the right thing. And like you said, even even Christians today that label themselves as Christian might not act like mm. Christians or may just do the bare, the bare minimum. And we see the first son, when he's asked to do something, he says no, but then he really quickly changes it to yes. Do we know why he changes his mind so quickly? No, apart from the fact that I think that son represents all these traditionally sinful people who initially say no but Mm. through the ministry of Jesus have been entering the kingdom. Yeah. So I think we're just meant to look at an example of Jesus's ministry in this parable. So this parable of the uh, evil farmer, as well as of how it gets described at the end of the end of the parable, you start to, when you start to read it, you start to quickly realize Jesus is being subtle here, but also not really. It's you quick, not that subtle. <laughs> no, you quickly realize, oh, hang on. Oh, he's talking about himself here and he is the son that's being sent. And all those that are against him are these ev- evil farm- farmers here. And yes, it does uh, at the end actually describe it to us and give us that that answer but I don't think it's very difficult to to quickly realize what Jesus is is doing here. No. Not at all. Like if you're looking for a good illustration of the entire biblical story, Jesus does it right here. Mm. Of God has for millennials and prophets to his people warning them to do the right thing and they mistreated them and they didn't listen to them and then eventually Jesus comes and he dies and that is when God steps in in this parable. But we know that Jesus' death does a bit more than yeah. just causing God to step in. And it's interesting because even in the parable here, it's like finally the owner sent his son thinking, surely they will respect my son. And you and, and you would think that too, like surely they you would respect God's son. Mm. But time and time again, as we've seen, no, they didn't. And as you were saying about the previous parable, about the people just, the religious leaders instantly knowing it was about them. Mm. Um, in Isaiah chapter 5, we see... Isaiah the prophet giving a parable about a vineyard, Mm -hmm. uh, very similar to this one. And in that vineyard, it is God's vineyard, but God's people mistreating it and misusing it. And so Jesus has not stolen, but reappropriated another Old Testament story Mm. for himself. Yeah, and those those that were listening on who knew 
all the scriptures would have quickly realized that and started to connect connect the dots more and the weight of that would have probably hit a lot harder as well. And I think an important thing to notice about this parable is that when God comes in and judges the old tenants and put new tenants in charge, that's not just saying simply that the Jews are out and Gentiles are in. It's saying that there is a new community going into this vineyard. And this new community we know is mixed of Jews and Gentiles, but it's not just Jews are completely out, Gentiles are now in, which I think the church has often interpreted it that way because the key point is that the new tenants will produce fruit. So it doesn't matter about the nationality. It is about what they do with the vineyard. Hmm. Why does Jesus randomly start talking about stones? Yeah, I think there is a natural link between the rejected son and now the rejected stone. Hmm. A fun fact, in Hebrew, uh, the two words are very, very similar. Son and stone are ben and eben. And so Jesus may have been appealing to the fact that he's just talked about a rejected son. And now he's like, yes, but also I'm the rejected stone and I'm going to be the capstone. Is that what he says? Let me, let Cor- me read it. Cornerstone. Yes, sorry. The rejected stone is now going to become the cornerstone. Mm. It is the thing that everything else is built around. It is a pivotal, almost the most important part of the building. Mm. And the cornerstone, for those that don't know, is the, is the first stone that gets, gets laid on, on the building. And like you just said, everything gets built around that stone. So Jesus is that stone that is, is the rejected stone that we build then everything off of Jesus and he is our foundation. Lachlan, you, you give us definitions a lot of the time in Hebrew. What language was spoken back then? I've yeah. never really thought about it until now. <laughs> fair, fair. Um, the book of Matthew that we've been reading is in Greek, but every so often when we see words in quote marks in Matthew, it's because the author's then giving us a definition of a Hebrew word, um, which is what the Old Testament is written in. As for like the language of the people, they all probably would have spoken Aramaic. So there's a lot of that mixed in as well. So there's a few ancient languages all going on at the same time, but definitely not English. And mm. so the like original Bible, what would that have been written in? Yeah, yeah. So the original Old Testament, all written in Hebrew. Yeah. And then the original New Testament, all written in Greek. That blows my mind. I just assume they spoke English. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, if I'm getting this correctly, the English language is a mixture and a hybrid of a lot of European languages. Mm. Uh, if you look at, uh, for example, German and English, German is a language if you are an English, if English is your native language, German is actually quite easy to learn of how similar the, the, the language is in it. Um, and so we sort of take English for granted because mm. it's mostly spoken as in, in, in the world, but it is a fairly newer language compared to sort of the more ancient uh, languages and texts out there. Oh, yeah. English is brand new. Mm. And it's just every other language gets mixed into English. Yeah. It's it's the language that beats up other languages in a dark alley and then ruffles through their pockets and goes, oh, there's some grammar and words that I'm just going to steal for my own. That's just like changed my whole view on the Bible and like, well, listening to things like when I we talk about the stories of on the mount, like mm. imagining that in another language now. <laughs> just yeah. assumed it was English. And this is where it becomes very, like we've had translations over the years and this is why we talk about it in this translation because it's had to be translated over the years. But th- mm. this is when we can get into sort of debates and everything. And we have, we 
we believe we have a pretty good solid translation, but then you'll have those select few other people and, and over sort of history where either translations will be slightly different because words are interpreted differently or people's agendas and, and, but also we don't have the, in sort of Hebrew or Greek, the English language might not have the exact translation of a word so then we've had to sort of come in and go oh most likely will be this Mm. this word in english or that so a lot of this is um translated and then if we really want to get to the heart we go this is the english version this is the greek this is the hebrew and sort of really in like really doing that research back into and people what their entire sort of like scholarly lives are just looking at the Mm. individual translations of of these of like a single word in the Bible and stuff. You get real deep into it. Yeah. But it can become quite tricky for us because of the years of translations and different people interpreting it. So Mm. It also depends on your translation philosophy. Mm. So say, for instance, you read in the Bible, the early bird gets the worm. You sort of have two options when you translate that. You have the the literal word-for-word option, in which case a modern author like us may have no idea what that saying means. And you suddenly ready, early bird gets the worm, what the heck? Or you could translate the meaning of it and say, those who come first will profit mm. is effectively what that saying says. And so our Bible translations often sit on a scale of going word for word, which is sort of more down the ESV type end of the spectrum, and then across to the let's just convey the ideas and not care about the exact words because mm. it's the ideas that are important. And at the far end of that scale is something like the message. And the NIV is such a popular translation is the one that we primarily use here because it kind of sits in the middle of those two philosophies. And a lot of um, a lot of the sort of the modern translations will like NIV and this one, I'm pretty sure. NLT. NLT will have more inclusive language in it as well. They'll, they'll recognize how language and this is where it comes into like it's also culturally um how do you in, how do you interpret a lot of this as as well because not only for our culture but the culture back then like you just said their sentences and words might have very different meanings to what we might have we even have that just for different countries in the, in, in the world when us australians say no worries a lot of the other everyone else in the world don't understand what no worries mean no i'm not worried i'm not worried yeah it's like yeah of course no worries like what no it's like (laughs) my one encouragement to you is having studied greek and hebrew at bible college is that the translations we have today are excellent Mm. like when we read the niv for instance just because it happens to be the one in front of me like this is god's word to us it has been translated excellently Every so often, there is something that we could fight about in the translation. So last week, for instance, we had the um, how many times should you forgive someone? Some translations go 70 times 7 and some go 77 because mm. there's a slight disagreement about how to translate the exact Greek there, whether it's 70 times 7 or 77. But the areas that we disagree with over translation are almost always the very minor points and the big flow is really obvious and has been well communicated to us. Mm. So my advice to our listeners is trust your Bibles. Do more research. That's fun. Look into the ancient languages because that's helpful and insightful in several passages. But Mm. as a whole, trust your translation. So who's getting married? Last time I checked, Josh (laughs) and I were already married whether anyone's in the room. (laughs) In this parable... 
we're not exactly told who is getting married, but the the father is clearly God. Mm. And so it would therefore be his son who is getting married. So Christians have always understood this as Jesus getting married to the church because the church is the bride of Christ. And so it is Jesus uniting with the church for all time has been a traditional understanding of this parable, but I don't think the exact people getting married is actually the focus at all in this parable because mm. mm. instead it is about those in attendance that is the focus. Yeah, and this is a, this again continues the, the parable of the evil farmer. It's talking about Jesus and it's talking about how he came but was, again, rejected. Rejected by the people expected to accept him. Mm. That's a good point to clarify. I want to know about where it talks about the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. And then they say, go therefore and invite as many as you can find. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that a little bit more? The story of the parable is that the king's son is getting married and he invites all his friends and they all come up with bad excuses or they refuse to come, which is effectively Jesus saying, this is the Jewish nation right now. They are the ones who were asked to come and they have all refused by Mm. their actions. And so this is the moment when Jesus then says, so we're opening it up to everyone. The king goes, just invite everyone who is willing to come to this wedding, into the kingdom effectively. However, we see that something is required of these guests. It's not just a free-for-all of literally everyone can now attend the wedding and be in the kingdom, but there is a requirement. Mm. Wedding garment? Yeah, the wedding garment. That is the requirement, oh. but I feel like you said that in a more questioning way. Yeah, I was like, is it? Well, because it's it's a parable, so it's so it's a metaphor for like we're using the metaphor of a wedding here, saying that the wedding is the is the kingdom, and you're invited to to the kingdom. However, the pre the pre the prerequisite, <laughs> <laughs> however, the prerequisite for it is. You have to, for if in this instance, for the wedding, you have to have worn the correct attire here. Which was not anything specific. It was simply clean clothes. Mm. Preferably white is what you would wear to a wedding in that time. And that was just a sign of respect for the host. So to rock up in not wedding appropriate clothes was a dishonor to the host. And so while in this parable, everyone has suddenly been invited, you're still expected to prepare for entry into the wedding. Like you're still expected to do something. There's an active part on those being invited. And it's where we're called to prepare ourselves for the kingdom of, of heaven here. We just had a sermon on the Luke version of this parable on Sunday. And I didn't realize how different the two parables were in the oh, two really? different versions. So the Luke parable ends just after the invite everyone. And so it's a really uplifting ending to the parable in Luke because it's like, oh, great. Everyone's come to the wedding. Look, mm. the kingdom of God is open. But in Matthew, it takes that one step further of them casting this guy out who is not appropriately dressed. <laughs> and so I was talking to the minister at my church who was preaching on this. And he was like, yeah, such an uplifting passage. And I was like, what about the ending? Isn't that a bit harsh? And that's when I realized for the first time that Matthew has added this little extra bit on, which either Luke chose not to add on or Jesus being a preacher probably reused his stories many times with slight variations depending on the context. And it's not its not like it's out of the blue because Jesus has sort of teached upon this subject prior to it and will in the future of the kingdom of heaven is open for all, but not all will be able to enter into it. Luke disregarding it or not adding it in and Matthew either you know adding it in whatever whatever the case may have been at the time for them writing it I don't think this is an out of the blue statement to to have written in there no not at all this next part is t- 
titled Paying Taxes to Caesar. Who is this Caesar guy? Yeah, so Caesar is the Roman emperor. So we're in the Roman Empire, and so everyone who is a part of that empire needs to pay their taxes to the people running the empire. I guess it's just because it's the first time hearing about Caesar in this gospel. It's just interesting. Why now? Well, I mean, Caesar is the grand cultural background to all of these events, like the Roman Empire ruling in Israel is the background to all of these events. Mm. I suspect we might have heard about Caesar at the very beginning of Matthew when we talked about um, the census that was being taken place because it was Caesar who called the census. Mm. Regardless, yes, Caesar appears here because they again try to lay a trap for Jesus. If people couldn't afford to pay those taxes, did they just die? Probably. I assume imprisoned until they could afford to pay it was probably the, the way it worked. What we see here is how the people against Jesus are prepared to make any alliances, mm. even though they might disagree with their now allies on any other topic. So what we see is the Pharisees and the Herodians joining forces, which makes no sense because the Herodians are the people who follow Herod and are really pro-Herod, pro-Roman Empire. And then you've got the Pharisees who are waiting for any moment to jump at the opportunity to get out of the Roman Empire and stop being dominated by this pagan force. Mm. And yet they team up together and come to Jesus with this question of, should we pay taxes? Mm. And it's another trap because if Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes, then the Pharisees can say, look at this man. He's not really a Jewish nationalist. Like He doesn't actually care about our people. He's a, he's a Roman puppet because he thinks we should pay taxes. But if he says, no, don't pay taxes, the Pharisees can go to the Roman governor and say, hey, this guy's telling people not to pay your taxes. And then Jesus <laughs> is removed from the equation for them. Mm. So it's another very sneaky trap that they've tried to... Yeah, and they're probably thinking, okay, well, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Mm. And they're like, oh, no, we've cornered him. We can get him here because, he, you know, if he this man claims to be the son of God, then he's no way he's going to be wanting to uh, give taxes to Caesar and everything. But again, as, as before, he expertly gives his answer. Mm. Whose picture and title are stamped on, on the coin? They reply, it's Caesar. And then he goes, well... Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Sort of giving the best of both worlds, <laughs> giving the best of both worlds here. Yeah, it's very, very clever. And this sort of like like this is harking on the respecting the law of the land that that we live on, but also understanding that the authority of that authority has come from God and we should respect, as well as that we are respecting God's authority, we also have to respect that God has given these leaders also the authority their authority. Yeah, Jesus shows that Christians and followers of Christ can live under a pagan government, and by extension, Christians and followers of Christ can live under a secular government. Like That's still very compatible with the Christian life. Can you just quickly clarify again what pagan is? Paganism is the belief in many gods. It is the religious system of almost all the ancient nations of this earth. So we're talking the Romans, the Greeks, the Norse, like anyone who had a pantheon of a whole bunch of gods. Okay. The Bible often uses pagan just in the sense of any other religion apart from Judaism. Yeah. We then get to the Sadducees. I was talking to my wife about this passage and she just kept repeating over and over, ah, they're sad, you see, because they don't believe in the <laughs> resurrection. And it, she just kept repeating it. It was really getting so annoying. Funny. It's a funny way of putting it. The reason they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead was they only believed the first five books of the Hebrew Bible 
So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They only believed that those five books were from God. They didn't believe that anything else in the Jewish Bible was authoritative, whereas the Pharisees and basically every other group believed what we would call the Old Testament. They believed the Hebrew Bible, that it was all inspired by God. And it's not really until you get to the books of Daniel or Ezekiel that you really start to see this idea about resurrection from the dead being a key component of the Jewish belief. What's their reasoning behind only believing the first five? Tradition said that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible and Moses is a man that was so clearly of God that you could never question Mm. where it came from. Whereas when you start to get to the authorship of the rest of the Old Testament books, starts to get a bit fuzzy. So they were just really purists of first five books, the books of Moses. That time Moses sat on top of a mountain and heard from God. That is all that we need. The ending here of it saying, haven't you ever read about the scriptures? Is that referring to the books that they don't believe or the books that they do believe? I think... Jesus is referring to the whole Old Testament as the scriptures. Mm. Every other time we see him talk about the scriptures, that is how he is saying it. But he does something very, very clever here, which is firstly, he refutes the Sadducees' misunderstanding of marriage at the resurrection, which is Mm. there is no marriage in heaven. And then he says, and if you knew the scriptures, you would know that there is a resurrection of the dead. There is eternal life to come after this life. And you can see that in the book of Exodus, which is one of the books you guys accept. Because God is the God of the living, not mm. of the dead. And I think it's quite clever that Jesus goes to one of the five books they actually believe is from God mm. to prove his point. Mm. So they try and trap him. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. He gets out of it pretty quickly. Mm. Um, John Calvin has the quote that as no man can be a father without children, nor a king without a people. So strictly speaking, the Lord cannot be called the God of any but the living which I thought was helpful to further explain Jesus's point, which mm. is that God, God is not the God of Abraham. If Abraham is dead and ceased to exist like the Sadducees believed was the eternal fate of everyone. Yeah. But he was the God of Abraham if Abraham was still alive. Do the Sadducees ever kind of flip their opinion? As far as we know, no. So in the book of Acts, Paul does the clever thing, which is the Pharisees and the Sadducees are putting Paul on trial. And he goes, I'm on trial because I believe in the resurrection. And then the Sadducees and Pharisees stop targeting Paul and start fighting amongst themselves (laughs) because they disagree on that topic. And then Paul just kind of edges away. (laughs) Um, So we know at least in the later period of the book of Acts, which is a good few decades on from here, that they hadn't changed their opinion on that. They were Mm. still very set. I love this next section of the the greatest commandment, the most important commandment, because it's so simple. Jesus sort of just lays lays it out. There's no... Um, ifs, no, there's no buts. There's no sort of what, what exactly did he, did he mean by that? He just replies, you must love the Lord of all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest of his commandments. Like it's, it's just nice and simple for us. There's, there's no, uh, like if we were to look at other, other traditions, there's no sacrifice this many things do this. Like there's no pre, um, boxes that you have to tick to 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 be able to achieve this commandment it's just love your lord yeah and jesus is so good at answering these questions because this is the last time in the gospel of matthew anyone tries to trap him with questions because jesus has just silenced the sadducees and then we read in verse 34 the pharisees are like well 
Jesus took care of them. Now it's our turn again. And they send a representative to question him about what the greatest commandment is. What I really like is that this story appears in a longer form in the book of Mark. And by the end of the conversation in the book of Mark, Mark 12 to be exact, this Pharisee has basically become a disciple of Jesus because he is so impressed with how Jesus has responded and engaged. And in the book of Mark, it says, because of this, no one dared to ask him any more questions, <laughs> which we read in Matthew in a few verses time as well, is that no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions anymore. And I wonder whether that's because these religious leaders realize that they are losing people to Jesus and his logic and his teachings. Mm. Like there are core members of their group who are slowly being persuaded by what Jesus is saying. What was the question that he that they were trying to to find? Do we do we know know that? Yeah, so there was arguments between the two different Jewish schools of thought about what the greatest commandment was. Some said it was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, which is found in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And others were saying no, it is the law to love your neighbor as yourself. Like that is the most important which is also found in the Old Testament. Mm. And so there was a big argument about which of these two was the most important. And Jesus did something that was so simple and yet seemed to blow all of their minds <laughs> and simply say they are both the most important commandment, which totally and utterly mind blows them, which to me it feels like the obvious answer of <laughs> these are the two top options being discussed. Why not just say both are as important? But Why don't we have both? Yeah, literally. that's Jesus does the meme. <laughs> he does the meme. Why don't we have both? It's that meme of love your neighbor as yourself. But did I stutter? Because <laughs> even Christians sometimes don't love other Christians. And mm-hmm. it's like, well, Jesus is clearly saying just love them. Yep. Should be pretty straightforward. Yeah. Yet. Yet. It's sometimes a bit difficult. And given that all the religious leaders have now given up asking Jesus questions because he answers them way too well. <laughs> Jesus then goes on the offensive and asks them a question. Ooh. Whose son is the Messiah? So, Morgan, whose son is the Messiah? The son of David. That's an option. But also <laughs> son of God, son of Joseph. There's a few options there. But yeah, son <laughs> of David is the answer that they gave. But I do like Jesus' response in that, saying, then why does David speak under the inspiration of the Spirit? Calling Like going, my Lord. It's It's very... Again, as we keep on saying, Jesus is very clever, clever here. It's like, well, why would David be saying my Lord instead of saying my son? My son. Yeah. It's just, I, when, when reading that for the first time, just refreshing myself going, ah, it's clever. It's very clever because Jesus refers to Psalm 110, which was believed to be written by David. And David is referring to the future king that is to come, but calls him my Lord or calls him my God. It's literally mm. the word for God there. And so Jesus is like, if the Messiah is the son of David, why does David call him God? And everyone's like, that, that's a good question. And Jesus is like, well, I know why they call him God. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's no contradiction there, right? So Romans chapter 1, verses 3 to 4 says that Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh, but also son of God in power. So you can be both son of David physically and son of God authoritatively like there's no contradiction between both of those being true of the one person so verse 46 says and no one was able to answer him a word nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions Mm, he shut them down Mm. yeah yeah jesus has won the intellectual debate for sure Right off the back of what we're just talking about, about how Jesus silences everyone with his thoughtful answers and questions, that's my big takeaway from this section. 
Like no one can intellectually go toe-to-toe with Jesus. His teaching is far too insightful. And I love that. Like that means we have so much to learn from him. And I'm looking forward to next episode, which will be Jesus's final sermon. And so we get to see some of that intellect and teaching in action for one of the last times in the Gospel of Matthew. I think from this episode, I've taken away to not be so sheltered with my idea of the Bible and what we read, learning about the languages, what was happening at the time, just not to, just to be open to all the ideas and explore things more. And for me, it's the, there's no doubt who Jesus is here. It's very clear in in his in his teachings that Jesus is the Messiah here, and but there's also, unfortunately, no doubt that what he's up against, and that he's clearly stating that, especially in these parables of the great feast and the evil farmer, that there are people here to to come and and re- reject him. And I think my takeaway from that is sometimes we ourselves can have that same similar that similar heart of of rejecting him, even though we ha- are trying to have the good intentions, we ourselves maybe through our actions tend to reject him. So just just reminding ourselves to e- accept Jesus into it and not be like those that are trying to be against him. As we're coming to an end, I just want to encourage everyone to send in their, their questions because we're actually going to do at the end, as we get to the end of Matthew, our episode after uh, we finish the book of Matthew, will be a Q&A uh, episode. So if you've got any questions throughout any of uh, of the book of Matthew that we've uh, read and throughout any of the episodes that you've listened to and any questions that have popped up, send them, send them to us and that will be the dedicated episode where we attempt to try and answer them to the best of our ability. Like always, make sure you keep up to date with our social medias. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and the like. And this podcast can be listened to wherever you get podcasts. And if you want to watch the podcast, and if you're just a just a regular listener and you want to watch the podcast, we do post our podcast onto YouTube. That's the visual form. And those that are watching it and you want to listen to it, you can listen to it on Spotify and Apple Podcast or wherever you consume podcasts. Don't forget to comment down below. We'd love to see what your thoughts are on these chapters of Matthew. Um, And again, any of those questions that may have been raised and you might be grappling with. Um, But also rate our podcast. It really does does help us to know what, what you think of it, but also allows us to get sort of discovered in the algorithm. I'll just end with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you today that the three of us can be here in person and we can read your read your word and that we're able to discuss it together and we can get more more out of it lord and i continue to pray over our our readings as we go go ahead throughout the day that we're able to continue to be hungry for your presence and your knowledge and your word that you give us and i also pray for everyone listening that you're with with them as they're going through their days in their life. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen. Amen. Lockie and Morgan, thank you for for joining us and we'll see everyone next week. Bye. 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 A Mustard Seed Creative Production.